The Disney MGM Studios proudly presents So it's going to be a swell demonstration and at no time will we be stooping to any cheap 3D tricks. Did you say cheap 3D tricks? Uh... Disney MGM Studios is proud to present Sorcery in the Sky. Lights. Camera. Action. W. Radio. Your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. This is show number 54 for the week of February 17th, 2008. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. In this week's Walt Disney World News, I'll look at a dining change in World Showcase, updates on the Backlot Theater in Disney's Hollywood Studios, new special events coming to Pleasure Island, and a very special event that's the first of its kind at Walt Disney World that will offer a truly unique experience in many ways. For the next In My Legends of Disney Imagineering interview series, I thought that with the recent name change of the Disney MGM Studios to Disney's Hollywood Studios and the new direction it's taking in entertainment offerings, I wanted to have someone come on the show who could speak authoritatively as to the genesis and growth of the park. So I decided that who better than to come on the show and talk about this than the man who literally put pen to paper and designed the original concept drawings for the Disney MGM Studios. He is former Walt Disney Imagineering designer, artist, show creator, and so much more, Tim Kirk. He'll join me to discuss the history of the studios, his work on helping form not only the original concept for the park, but his work on some of the premier attractions such as the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, the Great Movie Ride, Muppet Vision 3D, Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular, and countless others. It's a unique, first-hand look at the creation of the theme park and its signature attractions. I'll also have time to answer some more of your emails this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Let's start off this week's show, as always, with some Walt Disney World news and views. We'll start off in Epcot's World Showcase, where the Akershus Royal Banquet Hall in the Norway Pavilion has announced a package change to the Princess Storybrook character meals starting April 27th, 2008. As of that day, each Princess Storybrook character meal is going to include a photo package in addition to the family-style meal. The photo package has been announced to include one 6x8 print and four 4x6 prints of your party with one Disney princess plus a themed photo holder. Of course, the per-guest cost is going to increase as an adult breakfast is going to cost $28.99 for guests 10 and up, and a child breakfast is going to increase to $17.99 for ages 3 to 9. Lunches will now be $30.99 for 10 and up, and children will be $18.99 for ages 3 to 9, and dinners will now be $35.99, and children's will increase to $19.99. Again, those are for ages 3 to 9, and again, this doesn't take effect until April 27th of this year. The new Disney's Hollywood Studios logo and Mickey Mouse character have been painted on the Earful Tower after it received a fresh new coat of paint recently, 
You can visit the show notes page for a photo of the tower coming from a very unique angle. And uh, I have to say that it's really nice to see the tower looking great once again. Staying over at the studios, it looks as though, based on reports from listeners who have emailed me, that the work going on at the Backlot Theater seems to indicate that the building may be completely enclosed when it's finished. An HVA system looks like it's been installed, further evidencing what appears to be the case. Now, the building currently remains hidden behind the San Francisco Street facade, and there is no indication at this time that the facade may be coming down. Now, if that's the case, it will reinforce the rumor that the building will only be used for special events and not the location of a new show or attraction. The Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique over at Downtown Disney will debut Disney's Secret Star Makeover on February 24th, 2008. That new makeover is going to run $109.95 and it's going to include a wig, t-shirt, headset, makeup, backstage pass makeup kit, guitar purse, and photo shoot with a commemorative photo. Note that it's only available at the Downtown Disney location. It is not available at the Magic Kingdom's Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. In the Magic Kingdom, though, Splash Mountain has reopened from its recent refurbishment, and as I discussed in the rumor mill some time ago, they have done some work to increase ride throughput as a new third load area has been created. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see in real-world situations how this affects lines and wait times in obviously one of Walt Disney World's most popular attractions. Over at Pleasure Island, there are going to be five new holiday events coming in 2008. Now, the first one just passed, that was Sweetheart Island, obviously for Valentine's Day, but coming up next month is Sham Rock and Roll, where from March 14th through the 17th, from 7 p.m. till 2 a.m., Pleasure Island is going to turn green with live music from Seven Nations, videos by Irish artists, leprechauns, and stilt walkers throughout those dates on the 14th, 15th, and 17th. And if you really want to celebrate in full Irish style, you can head on over to Raglan Road's Irish Restaurant and Pub. They have a full program of Irish music, singing, and dancing on the 16th and 17th. Now, on the 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day, there is going to be a $15 cover charge. And for more information, you can call 407-938-0300. From June 5th through the 7th, there's going to be the kickoff summer party. From October 30th through November 1st, there's going to be Dance the Fright Away. December 31st is going to be the traditional Pleasure Island New Year's Eve party. More hours and details about those last three events will be coming in the next few weeks or months. And speaking of special events, I want to talk about one that was recently announced that I am personally very excited about. Now tell me, what would you think about an opportunity to visit Disney's Animal Kingdom at night, run a short marathon course while navigating an obstacle course, and looking for clues in a scavenger hunt? Follow that up with a private nighttime party in the park, and you have the Expedition Everest Challenge. The first of its kind, the Everest Challenge is going to take place on Saturday, September 27th from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at Disney's Animal Kingdom Park. Following the event, there's going to be an exclusive after-hours party from 10 p.m. to midnight. And the great part about this party is that even if your friends and family aren't running with you, spectators can purchase one of these very limited tickets and come to the party as well. So let's talk about the race itself. It's going to begin at the Butterfly parking lot of Disney's Animal Kingdom and consist of a 5K, which is 3.1 mile, race through the park past attractions such as Dinosaur, Expedition Everest, and the Tree of Life, before finishing back over at the Butterfly parking lot. Now, according to the Disney website, surprises along the way may pose as obstacle in your team or individual race trek. 
But here's the best part. A few of these surprise obstacles are going to be stationed in the butterfly parking lot once you return from the 5K run. They're supposedly going to be not very difficult to complete, but according to the website again, the team must have fun completing them. Then, after completing the obstacle course with the teammate, the trekkers have to return to the park along the same 5K course to search for clues inside their expedition passport. Once they find a clue inside the park, they have to have that clue stamped in their passport. Now, the site goes on to say that, quote, there are plenty of clues to lead them on their journey, but only a few will escape the Yeti. Interesting. And once a team has all of their clues stamped, then they can return to the finish line in the butterfly parking lot. Now, I and the website kept on referring to teams, but you can sign up as either an individual or as a team, and registration opened this past Friday, February 15th. Now, I have a feeling that this is going to fill up very, very quickly, which is why I registered early that morning. Yes, my wife Deanna and I are going to take up the gauntlet for this challenge and run as the WDW Radio Show Marathon team. Now, if you're interested in competing or just want to come by, join us maybe for a post-race party, I have posted a thread over at the forums in, at DisneyWorldTrivia.com to kind of get a list together of who may be going to run, cheer, and possibly want to meet up. I'll post that in this week's show notes. Back to the race, though. Each finisher is going to receive a commemorative inaugural medal, and prizes are also going to be awarded for team and individual men's and women's champions, as well as the co-ed champion. Obviously, this is going to be the first year that this race is going to be run. It really sounds like it's going to be incredible fun, whether you win, lose, finish, all the challenges or not. The cost is $195 for team registration and $100 for individual registration. Now, everybody that registers receives a one-day, one-park theme park ticket. Now, that ticket is valid from September 26th, 2008 through October 10th, so you don't actually have to use a ticket on that day. It does entitle to you one day of admission at either Animal Kingdom or at Epcot. You also receive your champion tech shirt, admission to the exclusive after-hours party at the park. You also get a commemorative inaugural medal for all finishers. Now, every participant must be at least 11 years old to participate, and you have to maintain a 16-minute mile for the 5K, as there is a two-and-a-half-hour time limit for the entire race. Now, if you're interested in purchasing additional party tickets for friends or family, you are limited to two tickets per purchase, and everybody's going to need a party ticket to enter the park between 10 p.m. and midnight. It is going to require a separate ticket, so like your annual pass is not going to give you admission to the party. It is subject to capacity limits, so there are a very limited number of tickets available. Extra tickets are going to run for adults $25, for kids 3 to 9 $15, and kids under 3 no ticket is required. Like I said, I'm going to put a link up to the official Expedition Everest Challenge website where you can register and find out more. In this week's show notes, I'll also put a link to a couple of threads in the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. If you are interested in going to race or wanting to meet up or just come down to cheer on, by all means, come on over, post in the forums, and let us know. Hope to see you there. Action. 
With the recent renaming of the Disney MGM Studios to Disney's Hollywood Studios, evidencing more than just a change in designation, but in direction, I thought this would be a great opportunity to speak with someone, or more specifically, the one person who literally came up with the initial design for that park. He is former Disney Imagineer Tim Kirk, and his work with Imagineering is one of the most broad in scope and in depth as he helped create some of the most important and popular attractions in the history of the Walt Disney Company. So it's my very distinct pleasure to welcome him to the show. Tim, welcome to the WDW Radio Show. I'm very glad to be here. Tim, there is so much, uh, like I said, that I'd like to talk to you about as I look over your accomplishments at Imagineering. I almost wouldn't know where to start first. But with the recent name change over at the studios, I thought we'd focus on your body of work there as it really is sort of all-encompassing. And I want to really start off with your beginnings at Disney. But before we do, I think your earlier work bears mentioning as it's extremely impressive. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of your prior illustration and concept design work? Yeah, uh, very briefly, uh, I started drawing when I was probably five years old. And and I started trying to copy basically comic books um, drawn by Carl Barks, my favorite all-time comic book artist, the, the famous duck artist who created Scrooge McDuck. And uh, I just pursued that all through my schooling. Our, our parents supported us in whatever we wanted to do, and in my case, it was uh, to be an artist of some kind. Uh, I went to California State College at Long Beach, got my master's degree in illustration uh, with a series of 26 paintings based on J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit. Uh, and through very good fortune, that collection of paintings and illustrations was seen by Ian and Betty Ballantyne of Ballantyne Books. And a selection of 13 of them was published in 1975 as the Tolkien calendar uh, for that year. And that was really a, a big jumpstart to my career. Uh, I worked for Hallmark Cards in Kansas City as a greeting card artist, doing funny animal stuff mostly. Uh, and I came to Imagineering in 1980 at the suggestion of my brother who said that they were hiring they, at that time they were getting toward the end of uh, uh, design work on Epcot and I kind of came in at the tail end of that so I did a little bit of work on that uh, my brother had done uh, a lot of the design work for the Kitchen Cabaret show and my only contribution to that was and I think this is the first thing I did at Imagineering that was actually used uh, was the Ham and Eggs slideshow, the Sing Along with Ham and Eggs. Uh, so that was my debut uh, at Imagineering. And now when you start at Imagineering, you know, the question everybody always asks, is, well, I want to be an Imagineer. How do you actually get that foot in the door? How do you get to Imagineering and get to start working on a project like Kitchen Cabaret? Well, it, a lot of it depends on, all of it really depends on your, your portfolio and your attitude. Uh, the great thing about Imagineering is that it doesn't really matter what discipline you practice, uh, architecture, interior design, illustration, uh, writing, uh, filmmaking. What they look for in a portfolio or in any, any kind of uh, work sample is can you tell a story uh, in whatever form. And they saw enough in my the samples of my work that I showed them, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings stuff. I've done a lot of science fiction illustration uh fan art for fanzines at first and then some uh, some published stuff uh i had done product uh uh, merchandise art for henson associates the muppets 
uh, coloring books, things like that. And I had enough diversity and variety in my portfolio, uh, character design uh, and environments especially, uh, imaginative environments, fantasy environments. A lot of that kind of thing was what really appealed to them, I think. So that that kind of got me in. And it's also timing. Uh, you know, there, there are busy periods and less busy periods at any company like that. And that happened to be a fairly busy period. So uh, it was just... Uh, a matter of good luck and good timing and, and you can be lucky but you have to be prepared for luck when it comes so I, I had the stuff that they wanted to see at the right time so that's how that happened and you talked about story and before we get on to really one of the big projects you worked on over at the studios one of the things you worked on too was Mr. Toad's Wild Ride tell us about what you did there yeah basically it was a, a reimagining of uh, of the toad ride and i'm trying to remember what was there before uh, maybe you can help me was it was it the old toad the, was it a, a copy of the toad ride here in anaheim there was a right there was a uh, an always a mr toad's wild ride in walt disney world um which obviously uh, you know as you know was replaced by Pooh, and then the the one in uh, california as well yeah and i'm, I'm just i think the, the toad that i worked on uh that i re i did new storyboards for toad basically uh I think that was a reimagining of the old Toad Ride. Some of your listeners might be able to correct me on that, but I thought there was a Toad Ride there before. Right. Uh, I could, could be completely wrong about that, but it's it's uh, it's out of my memory banks right now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, we basically it was just coming up with a series of gags. I worked with a writer, uh, and uh, it was a little bit funnier in some ways, a little bit gaggier. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to do because I, I had read... Well, I'd seen, read The Wind in the Willows many, many years before, and the, the Disney film version of that was one of my very favorite uh, Disney short films. So it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, that that's a personal nostalgic favorite of mine, and I, I love the attraction because I think it was just it was brilliant in its simplicity. Um, it was not a technological marvel. There were simple cardboard cutouts, uh, great use of you know music and effects and lighting, and I think that's what what some of the great appeal of that attraction was. Yeah, I think I think it delivered a lot of entertainment for the price. Absolutely, and it's, and it's a shame that it was replaced for um, you know whatever reason it was by Mr. Toad. But uh, really, oh, poo, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, my my Winnie the Pooh. Well, uh, again, as as you said earlier, it was it's popularity. You know, it's it's uh, uh, the cold hard reality is that you've got to uh, respect the audience and their taste, their interests, and and Pooh, Pooh certainly has that. Definitely. But your real, I guess, the beginning of maybe some of the your, your signature work uh, took place a little bit later on as Disney was starting to prepare for its third gate, which was obviously the Disney MGM Studios. And we all know now that this idea for a park grew out of a concept for Epcot, which was originally going to be great moments at the movies. That was going to be... Yes, another Epcot pavilion. <clears throat> and this was after Michael Eisner had come on board, and it, w- it was to be his first theme park. And, and the idea of a movie-based, Hollywood-themed theme park seemed like a natural. And he bought off on that. It, 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 at first, as you say, it was a pavilion, but uh, it kind of gained more critical mass and seemed to suggest that there was enough material to, uh, to do a standalone park. And, and originally, it was, it, was, it was conceived as a half-day park. Uh, so it was fairly modest in size, kind of tucked away into a corner on the property. 
and it turned out to be surprisingly much more popular than I, I think we had anticipated. How did you get brought on to this project? Because I've seen what was the original, or at least it's being referred to as the original concept sketch for the studios, which is almost exactly spot on as to what we had when the park first opened. Yeah, we were. I was working with, well, a, a great team. I don't remember how I actually got selected or whether I volunteered or, 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 or how that worked, but uh, a guy named Bob Weiss, who has since, uh, come back to Imagineering uh, was developing this idea for a movie-based theme park, and based on uh, our small team's uh, concept sessions, I did a sort of a cartoon bird's-eye view, of which I've done many, of the way this park might lay out, and it, it did change somewhat. But uh, in essence, it was one of the drawings that it was pretty much the way uh, it appears on opening day. Yeah, and I'll make reference to some of the elements on there because, like you said, many actually made it there, and some of them didn't, but they're interesting to note. Obviously, the great, it was called, the, according to your sketch, the Great Moments Ride, and you had originally drawn the Chinese theater facade. Uh, there was a soundstage restaurant, which we had at one point. We also had things like the Disney Museums and Archives, and Audio Adventure, and the Stunt Arena, and something else. Uh, that I really felt was notable, which was Cartoon Street and an animal handler's area at the far end. Can you tell us a little about some of those elements, at least as yeah. much as you remember? <laughs> what we did was look at the industry of movie making and kind of what what that involves, all the different elements that it involves. And we were really trying to, as well as entertain, to provide sort of a quasi-educational uh, experience at this park. So you would see... Uh, at least a version of how some of these things are done. Like with animal handlers, for instance, what, what, what does an animal wrangler do for film? You know, it would be an animal show, a, a live animal show. But the way animals are trained, the way dogs are trained, the way uh, we had even thought of a close-up uh, animal experience at one point where you would see, you know, a spider wrangler, you know, would, would demonstrate things. So we were looking at all these ways to, uh, to talk about uh, and and show in an entertaining way, including a studio tour or a backstage tour, uh, how movies are made. So some things dropped by the wayside, some things were deferred. Uh, Cartoon Street was an early attempt uh, to, to to express an idea that later became, well, I mean, Roger Rabbit is one idea, that, the idea that cartoon characters really make movies. Uh, they're not drawn. They're, they, they go to a studio. And this is before Roger Rabbit. Uh, we, we came up with that independently. Um, at one point, there was going to be a Roger Rabbit's Hollywood uh, expansion of Studio Tour, which, which didn't happen. We also had a concept for, uh, I think it was Anaheim, in the mid-'80s, uh, Mickey's Movie Land, mm -hmm. which was going to uh, go in where Toontown is today. So the idea of, of making movies uh, was was always sort of around, and now I lost my train of thought. That's all right, uh, because we were talking about making movies, and obviously one of the things we're going to talk about is sort of this transition of the studios from a real working production studio to, fortunately or unfortunately, what we have today. But you also did some great sketches of what would become the great movie ride, and the, the kind of transitioning from Musical Street to Gangster Street to Western Street to this alien corridor. Um, tell us a little bit about the creation of that attraction. Well, we, 
there's a place where we tried to break ground a little bit as far as the way it was operated, and it, it was always an operational challenge uh, to have a live operator who was also an actor or, or who had acting responsibilities. And the closest Disney had gotten to that before uh, we, we tried that was Jungle Boats, where you, you, there's a little performance involved as well as just operating the ride. So uh, we wanted to integrate this live actor who was the ride operator into the attraction in a way that really hadn't been done before. So we were asking them to do quite a bit, uh, jumping off the ride, you know, getting hijacked, being shot in the gangster scene, or being shot in the western scene. We went through a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different concepts for the way, the, for what the ride would take you through, uh, different movie genres. We picked very broad movie genres uh, adventure, romance, musical, science fiction, fantasy, um, and then selected examples that we thought were iconic uh, for that particular genre. Uh, Alien, for instance, at the time, which I think came out in 1979 or 1980, something like that. Alien was, was and still is uh, an iconic science fiction film. So we thought that that would be a good, good selection there. And for fantasy, we thought what could be better uh, from a kind of an ageless standpoint than The Wizard of Oz. So we kind of went through a, a selection process, and, and some things fell out because we couldn't get the rights from the studios or whoever owned the rights, which is not always the studios, even then. And we we basically came up, up with what you saw, what you see today. Um, and I think it's successful in, in, insofar as it went. Um, I think the audio animatronic figures at the time we're, we're pretty cutting edge. The Margaret Hamilton Wicked Witch of the West is, is a pretty amazing figure, I think. So, uh, so at the time, we, I think we were breaking some ground and, and shifting some paradigms with that ride. Absolutely, and I, and I think 20 years, almost 20 years later, not all the animatronics, but the scenes still hold their own. And that really must have been the tough point for all of you to decide was relevance of these films. You know, how are we going to choose films that are going to be relevant X amount of years down the road, so we're not swapping these out every so often, so the next generation of fans understands and, and can relate to these. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to swap film out than it is to swap out whole scenes and A figures, so we hope and assume that uh, the films you see at the beginning and, and the end, especially at the end of the, of the, the attraction, uh, could be swapped out as new Oscar winners came up, new films that seemed to be iconic came up, that would be relevant to that particular generation. Uh, so we built some flexibility into it there. And The Great Movie Ride, by the way, is, is Michael uh, Eisner's title. I, I think we were going to call it Great Moments of the Movies originally, and he thought it should have just something short and punchy and to the point. So it became The Great Movie Ride. And were there, were there ever plans, you know, thinking back when, when you're conceiving the attraction to say, okay, after X amount of period of time, this is when we're going to look to start swapping these out and if not looking at the attraction today do you, are you starting to say well maybe you know this one should come out this one should stay um maybe it does need a little bit more of an updating well i can't really speak to that completely because i'm not uh, an employee of the corporation uh, anymore and i think i think if, if financially it made sense to do that i think i think they would do it and i, I there are a lot of factors that come into that you know how much how much can you afford to spend on an attraction, especially to upgrade an attraction or to change something out, uh, versus its value? 
So I'll leave that to wiser heads than my own. But but of course, in a perfect world, yeah, you could do that. Like every two or three years, fresh, you could freshen it up with a new scene. That would be fantastic. Well, that actually brings up a point because there's obviously so much that goes into uh, the creation of attraction from when the pen put you know you put pen to paper and you come up with a sketch to actually it becoming a reality. What's what's that process like, going from sketch to reality? And are you you know, on site to watch any construction? Or are you consulted during the construction at all? Well, I, I spent a lot of time on construction sites, uh, which, I mean, the ideal is, is you know, you can start with a napkin sketch in a restaurant <clears throat> and you're standing there in the park opening day watching people uh, go into the attraction. I mean, that, that's ideal. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that on a number of things, uh, studio tour, uh, uh, Tokyo Disney Sea. Uh, which my brother and I spent boy over nine years on, uh, and that was right from that was right from tissue paper to opening day, uh, and that's 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 tremendously gratifying to be able to do that. And it doesn't always happen. I mean, I'm, the art library at uh, Imagineering is is full of of drawings, sketches, paintings by me and, and a lot of other fantastic artists that, that were just were just dreams, and some of them happen and some of them don't. Uh, but there are an awful lot of good ideas that get pumped out of that place. Anything that you had originally conceived for, maybe for the studios, or maybe were in that initial sketch, that you're disappointed never quite made it off the drawing board? You know, I don't think so. I think, I think, in a way, it kind of exceeded my expectations. And that was my first theme park, too. I mean, I worked, I did some work for Epcot, but, but the studio tour was the first theme park I was ever involved in from the opening bell till uh, till it opened and i don't know i was just so much of what we proposed actually got done the, the sci-fi dining theater uh primetime cafe uh hollywood and vine the, the buffeteria i mean we had so much fun uh just doing research i'm, I'm a i'm a history buff and, and, a, and i'm a movie buff also and we were driving all over los angeles looking at old buildings that we could uh, emulate because we wanted to to kind of describe classic Hollywood on kind of a, a Main Street uh, scale. So we really picked what we thought were iconic buildings that described Los Angeles in the, what we were, were what, what is assumed to be the golden age of Hollywood, which is pre-1940. 1939 is, is a year a lot of people choose as kind of the high-water mark of what we think of as classic Hollywood. So we were looking all over for remnants uh, here in L.A. of of what that was and what that meant. Did a lot of research uh, on the studios, uh, nightclubs, what the streets looked like, what what the stoplights looked like, what what the curbs, how were the curbs painted, you know, uh, just down to very, very fine detail. And the wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things about Imagineering and about the Disney Corporation is that you you can get deeply into that kind of thing. We did the same thing for Tokyo Disney Sea. I was a concept designer on one of the themed lands called American Waterfront. And this was in New York City in 1910. And we did a lot of research on what what it would have been like, 1910 versus 1920. There's a big difference. Uh, what There's an ocean liner, the Columbia, which is almost half the length of the, uh, the Queen Mary. Uh, and we wanted, we didn't want the Queen Mary, 1936. We wanted Titanic era. So we did a lot of research on what this scaled-down version of a Titanic-type ocean liner would be, what it would be like inside, what would be the deck fittings be, the hardware, uh, all this kind of minutia that, that I really 
love to do and love to get into. You know, what would the doorknobs look like? Uh, and with Studio Tour, uh, we certainly did a lot of that. And I think it's, it's a pretty satisfying result. Now, you, you also worked on the creation of some of the facades and the exteriors for Hollywood Boulevard as well, correct? Yeah. Uh, again, I, we, I worked with the architects on what the buildings would be, how, you know, how, just how they would be arranged, what you, know, what, what you would see when you walk in the gate. You know, the, we have a, a replica of uh, Crossroads of the World. Uh, Sid Goenga's, which is the little uh, California bungalow uh, souvenir shop to the left, uh, Oscar Super Service to the right. Uh, we created period-looking billboards, uh, not literal ones, but, but very, very close to uh, uh, some actual billboards that we found, uh, trying to evoke that era and trying to take you back to that time. Uh, we would love to have had uh, one of the Los Angeles red cars running up and down the street. We had uh, trolley lines up for it, but... Uh, budget wouldn't allow it uh and now that's i hear that's being planned for disney's california adventure which is great wow um so or something like it so uh uh we really got down into very very small details and it shows and we've talked about this on the show before and i think visually that the studios is one of the most beautiful parks especially Hollywood Boulevard, and if you take your time and look and see the different facades and the the changes in architecture from Spanish Revival to Art Deco to Southwestern, yeah, and Streamline con- Modern, and yeah, sure, so many of the, and so many of the actual buildings, like the Max Factor building that you can see, had a direct influence as well as just some general elements that maybe came from the time. It, it really yeah, the camera store, yeah. Absolutely. It, it really makes for a beautiful experience, and that's what we try and do is tell people to, to stop and take the time to look and appreciate the, the detail that you put into, you know, simply the, the street exteriors. Well, I'm a native Southern Californian. In fact, my, I'm third generation, uh, which is somewhat unusual. And so I've grown up with this stuff, and, and my, my parents and their parents... Uh, I rode one of the last red cars uh, in 1965 when I was in high school. So uh, I've been surrounded by this stuff for a long time, by the movie business, uh, at least peripherally. Uh, So that's a big help because it's kind of in your blood. It's not like you're coming from somewhere else and you have to kind of figure it out. Uh, It was just always there. And again, I I think one of the great things about being able to do this amount of detail is that it it rewards the guest. Every time you, you go to a Disney park, you notice things you didn't notice before. Uh, I mean, there's a hidden Mickey there that you maybe didn't see before. Uh, we always build those in. And I was sure I was being very clever in the great movie ride uh, in the Indiana Jones scene by p- putting an Egyptian hieroglyph on the opposite wall from uh, the scene with Indy and Sala uh, lifting the Ark of the Covenant out of the, of the crypt. Uh, it's, a, it's a hieroglyph of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, which I'm sure all of your readers have seen. Mickey, Mickey Mouse is an Egyptian pharaoh, and Donald Duck is presenting a, some kind of offering to him. It was just a little gag. We also had a R2-D2 and C-3PO in one of the other hieroglyphs, so just a little tip of the hat to uh, Lucas and Spielberg and company. So we have a lot of fun with things like that. We did the same thing in Tokyo, you know, all over the place. And I guess I haven't seen them, but I've, I've been told their website's dedicated to nothing but hidden Mickeys, so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Steve Bannon, the author of the Hidden Mickey's book, has a site called Hidden Mickey's Guide where he just does nothing but but put them up there. But you talked about those details, and that's something that we've highlighted in the past uh, on the show before. And I love at the studios, for example, the over by Min and Bill's Dockside Diner, the crates with all the obscure movie references and references to Roger Rabbit scattered throughout the park. Uh, again, so much being overlooked by the casual guests that might not take the time to look up or look down and see um, these yeah, little I, gems that are placed around. And again, a part of that was just an attempt to get more uh, intellectual property identification into it, more more classic movies. And if you write somebody's name on a crate, at least there's that reference. Uh, with Roger Rabbit at the time, that that was that had just come out, so it was very uh, relevant. Uh, you have to be careful with with those kinds of things, to, and hope that you know, 20 years later, they're, they're still relevant to somebody, that they mean something to somebody. You can be pretty sure about Gone with the Wind and things like that. Uh, but more recent things, it's hard to tell what's going to last and what's going to become classic and what will be forgotten. So that can be a little tricky. True. Um, you know what else I wanted to do was talk a little bit about specifically some of the attractions you worked on over at the studios, and one of which is mine and a, and a favorite of many people is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, uh, upon which you were the primary concept designer for. And one of the things I had noticed during my research was I saw a design of yours where you had created this cutaway image to illustrate how the show would fit into the twin towers of the building. And that's when the storyline was going to be very different and included in your sketch things like the Mad Doctor's Laboratory and the crypts and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about the original story and then your design and, and your work on it? Yeah, the, the attraction went through a lot of a lot of morphing. Uh, it was conceived at various times as a walkthrough uh, until you know the capacity issue came up and and, and that kind of went by the wayside. Uh, we were looking for one kind of hook. Uh, first of all, we wanted it to fit into the the old Hollywood neighborhood. Uh, so we gave it a Spanish revival or Mediterranean revival styling uh, because that was very common in Southern California, especially before 1925 or so. So the hotel really dates from, we were saying, 1918, 1919, something like that. Uh, There's something just inherently creepy for some reason about that that architectural style when it's something old and moldy and decrepit. Uh, We were looking for supernatural movie property uh, uh, of some kind that we could we could use as a hook, a show hook. Uh, we looked at, besides Twilight Zone, we looked at, oh, Stephen King. Uh, we had a couple of meetings with Mel Brooks. <clears throat> we we're going to do a walkthrough, uh, scenes from Young Frankenstein, things like that. Uh, and finally, Twilight Zone seemed to make the most sense, and we were able to uh, to uh, come to an agreement with Rod Serling's widow and uh, the other entities involved, and it just seemed uh, like a natural. And we were able to, again, for for fans who know the Twilight Zone, and as most of your listeners know, uh, as you're walking through the queue line, there are all kinds, and through the exit too, all kinds of little props uh, that if you know the Twilight Zone, uh, they're all references to different episodes. and we had a lot of fun with that. We watched uh, our writer, Michael Sprout, the guy I worked with, I don't know how many times he watched every episode of oh, five or six years that Twilight Zone were on, was on. And that was just really a lot of fun, um, 
trying to see how obscure you could really get. And, and no matter how obscure you are, somebody knows what it is. Right. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. And we had great interiors, people working on it. Uh, it really evokes that that musty sort of Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson kind of decayed elegance and in a really great way. And again, with uh, as far as period is concerned, since Hollywood Boulevard, we, we were saying, was basically the golden age, uh, 19, 1930s, Sunset Boulevard is during World War II, we were saying, just as a very distant backstory. So there are more references to the 40s there. They're recruiting posters. Uh, one of the food venues that has been retitled, I think, uh, was Rosie the Riveter's Red Hot Dogs. Mm-hmm. And that referred, of course, to the... the uh, female factory workers, uh, aircraft plants, and other kinds of factories during World War II, uh, who were generically called Rosie the Riveters. And so that was our reference to that. And and Sunset Boulevard and the shops, including the Carthay Circle, the very scaled-down Carthay Circle, which is a merchandise shop, lead you down to the Tower of Terror, which is kind of the anchor and the icon at that end of the street. So the era is slightly different, probably too slight to even notice, but but, uh, uh, it was in our backstory. Yeah, and that's the thing about the Twilight Zone that I think it makes it such an ex- exceptional attraction is not just the thrill factor, but that the attraction really begins as you approach it on Sunset Boulevard. And there is so much of a rich, detailed story that goes along with it from the time you, you step foot onto the, the grounds of the, of the hotel all the way till um, you exit. And again, even in front of by where the Fast Pass... Um, is and the, the sort of the entranceway to the hotel, even that was modeled after something in Southern California, correct? Yeah, the, you mean the Stone Gateway? Yes. Yeah, that 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 was actually the entrance, and I think it's still up there uh, to a real estate development called Hollywood Land, uh, of which the Hollywood sign is the remnant. And all that was 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 a a real estate scheme basically to, to sell property, and the land end of it eventually fell down and, and was taken away so in Hollywood was left and that's been maintained ever since so so that that stone gateway is a reference to that that particular uh, thing so there are all there are things like that everywhere and, and there are backstory documents on top of backstory documents on all this stuff and, and we had to write even more for Tokyo Disney Sea because uh, the Japanese operators just demand as much backstory on characters, on shops, you know, as you can possibly give them, so they can they can enhance the guests' uh, kind of information about what the place really is. So, practically, novels have been written about these theme parks. Oh, I can imagine, and that's what I was going to ask you. How much did you, you know, have an influence in the creation of the story versus the creation of the architectural elements versus? you know, the engineering of, of shoehorning in such advanced technology into this building that you had to make it look like from, from the 1930s? Well, as, as a concept designer, I work very closely with the writers, uh, and the, these teams are, are amazing, uh, the way they function, because they're, uh, there's so much synergy, and there's so much uh, uh, cross-fertilization. And so I would work, I'm, I'm not a writer, I, I, I've, I've written a few things, but I'm not a writer. And I would work with with them just on on what is the big story what what you know what what are we trying to say here who are these characters what are they doing why is this shop here uh, and 
a lot of it comes out of I have a I've been reading ever since I was four years old probably and I have a, a quite a literary background and so I was able to bring this sort of this broad range of interest to bear uh, and that that's a I, that's another piece of advice I'd give to anybody who wants to work in Imagineering is have a broad range of interests be, be curious I mean wonder about things you know uh, uh, it just it just helps to know. I mean, it, so you don't start regurgitating regurgitating your own ideas over and over again. Um, lost my train of thought again. <laughs> That's right. Well, you you actually bring up a good point about a broad range and spectrum. And, and forgive me, but I don't think that I was overstating your work when I said that you did help create some of the most popular and important attractions. And well, let's visit the other side of the studios where. You did a complete 180 and also worked on Muppet Vision 3D, uh, obviously a far cry from Tower of Terror. What kind of work did you do over at, at Muppet Vision? Well, that was a real pleasure because I had, I had already had some experience with a Henson company uh, just doing freelance work, uh, as I said, coloring books and, and things like that, sticker fun books for kids, baby Muppets, that kind of thing. So I knew uh, I had friends that worked at Henson in New York. And so it, it was a... That was one of the reasons I, I worked on uh, Muppets 3D was because I had that that background with with that product with those characters, and that was really a lot of fun. There were again the the synergy between Imagineering and the Henson people was was just wonderful. Uh, they were such great people. Two very similar organizations. Uh, in the case of Henson, the founder was was still with us, uh, so that's that's even better. Uh, and, and we had a great time with it. And, and the tragic thing is that uh, Jim Henson passed away while while we were working on this thing, so he never got to see it completed. Uh, but I had a lot of fun just, again, getting down to a little very small detail level. Um, and I don't know, I haven't been down to Florida in quite a while, so I don't know if any of this stuff is still here, but the queue line into Muppets 3D had a lot of, Muppetization, we called it, just on on uh, gas pipes and things like that, and we would just put eyes on everything, mm-hmm. you know. So so you you would see a Muppet face uh, where you least expected it. Again, uh, giving people in a queue line something to do, um, some something some interest, and starting the story out there, so that by the time they actually get into the attraction, whatever it is, they're primed and, and they know kind of what to expect. We we did uh, we did something. we did an hour segment on the show just about the queue of Muppet Vision. So I can tell you that the work is still there and it's very much appreciated and and it's an attraction in and of itself. Oh, that's great! That, well, that was a lot of fun to do because I I love the product. Uh, I think the show was brilliant uh, in the seventies. Uh, very simple idea for a show, but but just uh, wonderfully produced. So it was a pleasure to work with those folks. Well, I mean, how do you take the idea of bringing the Muppets? to quote-unquote life to uh, a theme park and making it attractive and relevant to a multi-generational audience um, and something that's obviously going to have a long staying power and repeatability factor because it's, the show has remained unchanged for almost 20 years and still continues to, to pack the house. Yeah, and, and again, it's very hard to predict what will become kind of a timeless icon and, and, and what will go by the wayside. I mean, you know... It's hard. I mean, there's, there's there's an appeal to the Muppets, and even though there isn't much out in the media right now uh, about them, you know, they don't have any regular TV shows right now or anything like that. There's still a charm to it, and and there's they're very very funny, and I, I think that's kind of what keeps it going. 
Uh, I don't know. I, it, it's 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 very hard to say what what why they're still so appealing. Yeah, I it, I could say that that's true from the opposite side of the table from the fan perspective because some of us have been to Walt Disney World more than a hundred times and I've seen I could practically recite um, the entire script from Muppet Vision but unlike other attractions where you say yeah you know I've seen it I don't need to see it again there's something about going and making sure you get the full time in the queue because you want to see that entire narration and you want to see the props and the gags and you enjoy sitting through the entire attraction and it's still funny 20 years later, however many times afterwards. And that's an appeal that the Muppets has that it's yeah, not found I, I in many think, attractions. I think the, the Muppets have an exuberance and an enthusiasm and kind of a, I mean, even though they're, they're gaggy and very cartoony and, and sometimes sort of violent in a cartoon way, they're also very good natured and very, there's a kindness to them. Uh, they don't see much, today in a lot of popular media, especially stuff for kids, watching the Cartoon Network and things like that, there's, there's a lot of kind of casual cruelty and, and, and thoughtlessness that you would never expect from the Muppets. And I think there was something about Kermit that was very similar to Mickey in a lot of ways, I think. I think they both had kind of a, oh, a similar everyman, a decent everyman kind of uh, image. And I think that's kind of what made the relationship uh, with the studio tour work, as far as the Muppets were concerned. Yeah, absolutely. It was a natural fit uh, for the Disney and the Henson Company to come together. And like you said, we as fans would love to see so much more take place with the Muppet franchise and being expanded, whether it be in the parks or in the movie movies or on TV. Yeah, I, I have real high hopes for that. I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Absolutely. But so you work on, you know, one of CBS, tele- one of the, gr- the greatest, honestly, uh, an attraction based on one of the greatest television shows in history over at Twilight Zone. And the legendary Muppets is next. And now you, you go over to another corner of the park and you deal with, again, one of the greatest movie franchises in history. And that's George Lucas and the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular. Tell us about where that idea came from. Well, again, as, as an element in the studio tour at the very beginning we knew we wanted a live well more than one live show but a stunt show seemed like a natural uh... stunt arena dedicated uh... you know with set capability and effects capability and things like that seemed like a natural and we we went through some permutations of what that would be also uh... before indiana jones was settled on it and we had looked at other 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 kind of properties of we had looked at generic science fiction uh, generic after-the-bomb movies like uh, uh, Mad Max, as an, and I think those would have worked. Uh, but Indiana Jones, again, is another one of those, those icons, especially uh, in entertainment, that just seems timeless. And we'll see how timeless in a couple of months when number four comes up. Uh, but it lent itself very well to a live-action stunt show. Uh, so that's kind of what was settled on uh, that way. And I also art-directed uh, a prop display at the exit uh, to the stunt show, which with some vehicles, uh, tank and some other vehicles from uh, the third episode of The Last Crusade, and, and also the merchandise shop, which was more of a, a generic sort of an adventure outpost kind of thing. Uh, and I assume it's still selling Indiana Jones merchandise. I don't know. Of course. <laughs> 
And, and again, I, I mean, this is going to be a huge shot in the arm for that uh, when this fourth film comes out. Absolutely. And again, you're talking about appealing to a whole new generation of fans um, by by this coming out. I think this is going to really sort of reinvigorate that attraction and this whole sort of uh, genre and this whole area over at the studios. So yeah, and again, it may, it may at some point justify changing that show too. I don't know. Yeah, it's something that's been long rumored uh, for for a, you know a very very long time about updating the attraction or updating the stunt show. We're bringing in something along the lines of what they have over in Disneyland, that type of an interactive attraction as opposed to show. And I think um, you know anything would be welcome uh, because the franchise is still so viable and still so popular. Yeah, it's extremely strong. I mean, that, that's one of the most popular attractions over in uh, in Tokyo at Tokyo Disney Sea. And by the way, it was the only attraction uh, that was not original to that park. Uh, and even that, it's the the, the concept is, is new. The ride ride system is the same ride system as the one here in Anaheim. Uh, but in in Anaheim, the theme is, is Southeast Asian. And with research, we found that the Japanese vacation so much down in Southeast Asia that it's not exotic to them. But Central America is exotic to them. So uh, it became the Temple of the Crystal Skull which maybe coincidentally, maybe not, is very similar to the title of this fourth movie. True. So. Yeah, before we get away from the studios, I'll just touch on you. You mentioned Tokyo Disney Sea, and, and this may be a, a segment for another show, maybe with your brother, because you were actually the senior designer over at Tokyo Disney Sea, a place that I know I personally am, am very much looking forward to seeing, as I understand it really is probably often considered the most beautiful of, of all the Disney theme parks worldwide. It's amazingly beautiful. I, I was I was not the primary senior designer, but I, I kind of I had responsibility for uh, specifically for uh, American Waterfront. But I kind of floated through the whole park, and I was with the, the project from the beginning. So I kind of went around spreading my uh, pixie dust everywhere, <laughs> and, and it, it, yeah, I think that's a subject for another show. Uh, but but I think. Uh, get Steve and me together and I think we can talk a lot about that. I would love to. I think that would be absolutely fascinating. And I just have to mention one other thing that you worked on that I know over at Walt Disney World because I just covered it recently on the show and that was over at Winter Summerland and you kind of create that initial concept of the ice skater and this sort of humorous contrast between hot and cold and, and ski resort in Florida and it's just I mean, it's, uh, it's brilliant. It's a very simple, simple, simple high concept. You know, it snowed in Florida. And what would that mean? <laughs> and and it, uh, it it really, again, it came off surprisingly, I think, better than some of us thought it would. Um, that was a lot of fun to do. I've done little bits and pieces. Uh, I worked on the original concept for the Adventurers Club. Uh, I I did the concept for a merchandise shop on Main Street that I think is still there called the Main Street Athletic Club, mm-hmm. uh, which was a you know, turn-of-the-century sporting goods store, basically, was the concept for that. Uh, so there have been a lot of little little bits and pieces um, spread around uh, over the course of 22 years that I was very fortunate to be able to work on. I thought it was a great run. I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed <laughs> how, working. How many, uh, how many years did you spend with the company? I was there 22 years. My brother was there 25. Um, his wife was there 22. Or he, he met his wife there. So, yeah, we've, we've got a long history long history there and now we're back as contractors so that's that's very exciting too 
Well, that was that was going to be one of my my next questions is what are you doing now? You know, specifically related to the theme parks, and are you do you have any sort of work possibly that uh, you know with Disney? Obviously, I know you you probably can't talk about a lot of it, but um, is there something maybe in the pipeline? Is the Tim Kirk Midas touch coming back to, to Walt Disney World? Um, I well, <laughs> that's, that's very flattering. Yeah, we've we've got some stuff uh, going on there, um, and some other places too. Uh, we we've had we 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 left we we incorporated ourselves in 2002, uh, left the company, and have been doing pretty much the same kind of work. We've done the uh, theme park uh, concepts in Korea, uh, Middle East. Um, we've done small museum work. We did the science fiction museum uh, for Paul Allen up in Seattle, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, it's the only museum that we know of devoted just to science fiction. Uh, we did uh, a museum in, here in L.A. dedicated to the female evangelist and faith healer of the 1920s, Amy Semple McPherson. Uh, we've had quite a varied client list, so it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'm actually looking forward to hopefully one day visiting the science fiction theater. I'm a huge science fiction buff, um, as I know you are. Um, you would be in paradise up there. <laughs> I wish we had more space than we did, but, but it's, it's, uh, it's quite a little gem. Yeah, and I know just, you know, from your resume that you are as well, you won five Hugo Awards, which, you know, is just, uh, it's very prestigious. And so I can imagine the work that, that you guys did out there. Yeah, having the background in science fiction that I did have uh, made it much easier and a lot more fun to, to work on this thing. We wanted, just to be brief, we wanted it not to be just a movie museum, not just about Star Trek or Star Wars. We wanted to honor the, the literary genre that is science fiction and then show how many forms it's taken. Uh, books, magazines, film, the Internet, you know, whatever. But uh, it's, it's a very viable and very uh, durable literary form. And uh, this, this allowed us uh, to, to present it in a really fun showcase with some interactive stuff, and, uh, and it's worth a visit. Uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting a chance to see it. But um, as we kind of just wrap up, I just want to ask you one uh, opinion question specifically about the studios because they've changed over the years, not necessarily in just appearance, but, you know, and how has maybe Sunset Boulevard changed the landscape literally and figuratively, but really it changed also in principles and in goals. And no longer is this working production studio with this unprecedented guest access and now there's really a shift more towards media beyond just the movies. Um, what do you think about the changes over the years? What do you think about the future of the studios based on what's been going on recently? Well, first of all, uh, it was always a challenge to, to actually do production down there. Because at the time, especially in Orlando, there, were, there was little, if any, uh, post-production support. Uh, there was just it was very hard to, to justify doing a movie down there uh, because it was just it was just hard to get it done. And, and the experience was great for the guests, but it increasingly became harder and harder, I think, to get any, any meaningful kind of production going on that you could actually look at and see. So I, I'm not surprised that it's kind of evolved this way, but as far as new media is concerned, I think, I think you have to move with the times. And I, I, I think updating in that way is not is not invalid. Uh, I think it's I think it's probably the right thing to do. I, I would hate to see the historic and, and the sort of timeless iconic stuff that we put in taken away, but but uh, it is two thousand eight. 
And I, I just hope, and again, I haven't been down there in quite a while, so I, I don't know what's, what all has happened, but, uh, uh, and the name change and all, all the rest of it. Um, but times change. I mean, things evolve over time, and uh, we just have to be brave. <laughs> well, we spoke briefly before we started recording about just the, the company right now and the company's direction, and I think we're, we're both in agreement that with the creative element that John Lasser's bringing in and the marriage with Bob Iger, it's an exciting time for the company, and I think positive things are going to happen both on the in, in the film uh, area as well as the multimedia, as well as what we're going to see, especially in the theme parks. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, last year the studio was number one in Hollywood uh, in film production. I mean, in, in I think in assets, uh, just things are, are going along very nicely now in, in television and, and all through all the other media. And we're very optimistic about it, and we're very excited about working with John Lasseter. Uh, again, as I said before, since he is a fan, he's a big fan, and he loves he loves Mickey Mouse, and he knows it. I mean, he knows it really well, and he respects the product. And one very heartening thing to hear is that he he wants to go back, and I'm sure everybody on on in your audience knows this. He wants to go back to 2D animation as well as continuing with with Pixar's uh, 3D, which I think is fantastic. So uh, we'll just have to see what develops. Uh, Very I, exciting time, though. I agree, and I think that uh, when you talk about you know going back to two D animation, it brings a smile to the face of, of many people, myself included. And so yeah, and to bring to bring his sensibility to two D animation with these new projects like Rapunzel, uh, the Frog Princess, I, I'm really really excited and looking forward to what uh, what's coming out of the shoot. I am as well, and I'm looking forward to hopefully sometime in the future being able to see more of your work coming to the Disney theme parks uh, worldwide, hopefully Orlando. Um, Tim Kirk, former Disney Imagineer, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit and chat with me just very briefly, just sort of scratching the surface on what you've done for the company. Uh, I can tell you I and so many other people continue to enjoy your work and what you've done each and every day. And uh, I hope we have the chance to speak again, maybe about some of the other projects, some of the things you've worked on for, for Disney. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Take care. I didn't get a chance to answer some of your emails last week simply due to time, so I'm really sorry. I know I'm a little bit farther behind than I was before, but I did want to take a few minutes and answer as many as I can on this week's show. So the first one comes from Brave Little, who writes, What type of arena are they building at the wide world of sports? Some say it's a soccer stadium, others just say it's a gym. Well, what she's referring to is the new Jostin Center that's going to open up over at Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex this summer. It's going to be a multi-sport field house, and it's going to host events such as basketball, volleyball, wrestling, martial arts, to really double the number of indoor events that could potentially be held over at the Wide World of Sports. It's going to encompass more than 75,000 square feet, and really is going to almost double the amount of uh, regulation-sized basketball courts, volleyball courts, hockey rinks, locker rooms and meeting space that they that they currently have there now. So obviously, while it's not a sports-specific venue, it is going to be able to host a variety of different types of events. Next email comes from Chris Rainiak, who said, Lou, I was wondering if you've ever done a DSI on Cosmic Rays Starlight Cafe at the Magic Kingdom. 
Has Cosmic Rays always been at the parks, or is this where Stargate East or West used to be located? I know it's not an official attraction at the park, but Ray provides a little hidden entertainment while you eat, otherwise that might be missed. One of the While we're at the Magic Kingdom, one of the relaxing things we like to do at the end of the day is sometimes get a bite to eat at Cosmic Rays, let the park clear out during closing, and then make our way to the Disney transportation area. Thanks again. Keep up the good work, Chris. Chris, you're right. Uh, Cosmic Rays Starlight Cafe was not an opening day venue. It actually was originally the Tomorrowland Terrace that used to serve um, really unique types of, ha- I mean, as, as unique as you could be, hamburgers and things like that. They had the Orbit Burger, the Moon Burger, Gemini Burger, Space Dogs. They also had different colored condiments like purple ketchup and green mustard, things like that. That closed, and in September of 1994, that reopened as Cosmic Rays um, a little bit later on that year. So I'm going to talk some more in the future about Sunny Eclipse and some of the cool little-known facts about Cosmic Rays, so definitely stay tuned for that. Amir Shirazi wrote and said, Hey, Mr. Mangello. That's my dad. I'm Lou. I'm a new listener but a longtime Disney Parks fan. I was wondering what thrill rides you suggest throughout the resort, water parks too, and if the Contemporary Resort turns into a DVC resort, it is, will that mean that only DVC members can stay there? Thanks, love the show. It's great to see that there are people that are like as obsessed with Disney as I am. Uh, thanks again, Amir. Amir, yes, you are not alone. There's a lot of us out there that are probably equally, if not more, obsessed with Disney as you. So, okay, so you want to know thrill rides that I suggest throughout the parks. Um, I- I'm a big fan of all the attractions, obviously. There- there's not many that I wouldn't recommend, but if I had to pick one or two in each of the parks at the Magic Kingdom, I'd probably say you got to go with the classic of Space Mountain as well as Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, two of the very best, I think, in the Magic Kingdom. Epcot Test Track is probably... Uh, your best bet as far as thrill rides go, especially if you have motion sickness, maybe you want to stay away from Mission Space. Over at Hollywood Studios, you got the, the tandem at the end of Sunset Boulevard, Tower of Terror, and Rock and Roller Coaster. And obviously over at Disney's Animal Kingdom, you have Expedition Everest. As far as the contemporary DVC, I know it's still a rumor because Disney has not announced anything official, but I think it's pretty much a fait accompli that this will be a DVC resort. However, If DVC members have not rented out all the rooms when you're looking to stay there, guests can actually rent them as regular hotel rooms for the night. So you do not need to be a DVC member in order to stay in any of the DVC properties. Frank sent me the next email and says, Lou, I know you're a busy person, but I have a question that maybe you could perhaps help me with. A friend of mine asked me if there's any way to get a reservation at the castle for the character breakfast, even though his dates are booked. Should I tell him to keep calling? Is there much of a chance that there will be any opening nearer to the date he needs? I haven't had to think about character meals for years since my daughter got older, so I just don't know much about them anymore. Thanks for the help. By the way, when do you have time to sleep, Frank? Uh, Frank, I never sleep. So that's the first answer to your second question. But as far as getting reservations for the castle, if it's important to them, if they really are looking to try and get reservations, my best advice would be to continue to call Every day, call every morning to see because you never know. You might get lucky. Somebody might actually call up. They might cancel and it just might happen to be on the day or or days that you're looking for. Be flexible if you can. Try and offer a couple of different days that maybe you could try it out. Um, It's a very tough ticket to get. Uh, You might have better luck getting selected to sleep at the castle better than having somebody cancel and get a reservation at the restaurant. But it has happened and it can happen. You might even get lucky calling that morning and seeing if they have any openings. So 
Hopefully, if maybe you're not going during a busy time of year, someone might actually call and cancel. But yeah, my best advice would just be to call every day, including and up to the actual day that you arrive on property. Next email is from Matt, who said, Hey, Lou, thanks for the podcast. I really enjoy listening to it when I jog to the gym. I'm going with my wife this weekend to Disney, and I'm trying to book a Disney hotel. But the usual websites like Travelocity, etc. are so expensive. Do you know of another website where I could book a Disney hotel like a moderate, but at a more moderate price? Thanks, Matt. Matt, most of the websites out there like Travelocity and Hotels.com and Expedia have the same prices across the board for the Disney hotels. They're set by Disney, and there's really not a lot of room uh, on those sites for a lot of play as far as the prices go. What I would probably recommend you do is actually go to the Disney website. Check there. You might get lucky. There might be some specials that are going on. Or even better yet, I know you're, you're leaving right away, but as a general rule, I'd say to probably find yourself a Disney specialized travel agent and use them to book because what can happen is when you call and make the reservation, they can and they actually should be checking for you on a daily basis to see if there are any discounts that might come up, any specials that may be um, in play when you're going that they can apply to your reservation even if you make it and those those specials aren't being advertised right there. So it could be annual pass holder discounts, AAA discounts, just about everything. That's probably your best bet because, like I said, the other websites are probably going to give you the same prices across the board. This next email is not a question, but it's a follow-up to something that I talked about on the show earlier. This comes from Keith Kelleth, and he said, Lou, my wife told me about the episode in which a person asked about Kingdom Hearts merchandise in Walt Disney World. As an obsessive Kingdom Hearts fan myself, I was on a hunt for anything Kingdom Hearts related on our last trip. I was happy to find a small section of action figures in Mitsukoshi and Epcot. There wasn't much beyond this as far as things to purchase. However, I was very happy to find a few Kingdom Hearts items on display in One Man's Dream at Disney's Hollywood Studios. It was hidden away in a little glass case by the theater with the other quote-unquote Disney Interactive games on exhibit. There was a manual for Kingdom Hearts 2, as well as a Japanese-only King Mickey figure on the desk. This game may have been played on the TV as well. I'm a bit fuzzy on the details. They also had a trailer playing for the game in the World of Disney Store in downtown Disney in the boys' toys section. My wife Sarah says hi and tells you that she loves the show. Best wishes, Keith. Keith and Sarah, thank you very much for clearing this up for me. Uh, I admittedly am not all that familiar with the Kingdom Hearts game. I, If you listen to the last... A couple of emails. I don't sleep very much and obviously don't have very much time to play video games, unfortunately, anymore. I know the game is wildly popular. Um, like I said on the original email, I get a number of questions about this. So I really appreciate you letting us know that you can find some toys over at Mitsukoshi in Epcot. And you could find some other things additional on display over at One Man's Dream in Disney's Hollywood Studios. Catherine Price wrote to me and said, Hi, Lou. Could you tell me how I could send a note to Disney about a few cast members that really helped to make our last vacation extra special? Also, do you know when Disney typically starts selling tickets for the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party and also for the Candlelight Processional Dinner? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Love the show. Keep up the great work, Catherine. Catherine, to answer your first question, I, I appreciate your writing to me, and I appreciate the fact that you're going to take the time to really find a way to send a note about exceptional cast members. You don't know how important that is to them, and I think it's important to Disney, that cast members get recognized in this way. The best way to contact them is not with a phone call or an email. It really is to write a, a personal letter, and you can send that to Walt Disney World Guest Communications, that's P.O. Box 10,400-10400, Lake Buena Vista, Florida, 32830. 
Again, personal letters uh, often get a response. I've done that before for some cast members. I've actually gotten phone calls in reply from Disney uh, letting me know that they appreciated that and they would put that not only in their file, but they would let their lead or their manager know about the letter. As far as your second question, uh, I'll use last year as an example. For Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, the 2007 tickets went on sale on May 1st. And you could actually call 407-WDisney to order tickets or to find out. Obviously, you should also go and check online. You can order them there. Um, they, st- they, they come out and they're offered so early. Because the party does start so early, I don't know when it's going to be this year. Last year, it began on November 12th, which is pretty much right at the end of Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. And if you do call in advance, obviously, you do get uh, a break on the regular day of event price, which is about $51. If you call in advance, it's about $45. So you can save 6 or $7 or so by calling in advance. Heather Jones from Florida wrote and said, Hi, Lou. Thanks for giving us such great shows week after week. My question is about ghosts. Do you know any good ghost stories surrounding Walt Disney World? With so many people coming and going for years and years and all that's happened there, not to mention all the mythology surrounding the resort in general, I figure there has to be some ghost stories swirling around. I think I heard something about a ghost haunting Pirates of the Caribbean, but I don't know many details. Have you heard anything about this? Thanks so much, Heather. Heather, the ghost story that you're talking about, about Pirates of the Caribbean, is really the only one that I know and has become somewhat urban legend or just legend. And that's about a ghost named George over at Pirates of the Caribbean. And and supposedly, according to the story, George is the name of a ghost of a maintenance man who was killed inside the building during construction. And the way the story goes is that if cast members don't say hello to George every morning or say goodnight to George at night, the ride will inexplicably break down every day. Uh, It also might happen if people say they don't believe in George, if cast members say that the story isn't true, that'll happen You could take that for what it's worth. Um, You know, some cast members will tell you that the legend lives on and that really is true. Other ones will just tell you, like I said, that it is sort of just one of those urban myths that, uh, thanks to the Internet, has sort of gotten a lot of popularity. But that's really the only ghost story that I know. Uh, If anybody else has heard of anything else that they've heard going on at Walt Disney World regarding ghost stories, I'm sure I and, and Catherine would love to hear it. Roger from Michigan wrote to me and said, Lou, my wife Amber and I will be attending our first ever food and wine festival this year. Well, we've been to Disney many times before, we're looking for a little help regarding meals for this trip. We're DVC members and we'll be staying at our home resort, the Beach Club Villas, from September 30th through October 3rd. From trip reports we've read, it sounds as though we'll have plenty to eat while making our way around the world at Epcot, but we are looking forward to trying one or two restaurants for a great meal as well. We aren't planning on purchasing the dining plan as we have a decent amount of Disney reward dollars to use from our Disney Visa card. What are some suggestions you could give us for a couple of nice meals? We don't want anything too fancy like Victoria and Albert's, but something worth talking about for sure. We're only going to have two and a half days roughly to spend on property, and we will be using our two full days, Wednesday and Thursday, to spend at the parks, but our meals don't have to be inside one of the theme parks necessarily. Also, do you know if Disney is going to offer the free dining plan again this year? If so, I'm worried it will be during our trip, so we might have to make our ADRs early. Thanks again to keep up the good work. That comes from Roger in Byron Center, Michigan. Roger, uh, with regard to some special restaurants that you want to try without sort of going for your lungs and and eating at Victorian Albert's, if you are willing to go outside the park, um, there's a few that I could recommend. You know that I'm very, very big on uh, eating in Walt Disney World and around the parks. I really like the California Grill over at the Contemporary. You'll have a very nice romantic meal. You also mentioned 
about this is your, your last trip being alone you're, since you're going to be taking your 17-month-old next time you go. California Grill, very nice, very romantic. Get his table by the window, watch Wishes in the Evening. Um, I really, really enjoy the flying fish over at the boardwalk. I, I think it's probably one of the very best um, restaurants on property, bar none. It's not just seafood. There's also exceptional steaks there. Uh, I think it actually rivals the next thing on my list, which would be the Yachtsman Steakhouse. That's the cross the way over at the Yacht and Beach Club. Um, I think those are wonderful experiences, not only because the restaurants are exceptional, but because you have the boardwalk right there to enjoy as soon as you're done. Or if you want to eat and go back, maybe watch Illuminations, you can walk right over there for that. If you want to try something a little bit different, Boma, or even better yet, try Jico over at the Animal Kingdom Lodge. Uh, an exceptional meal, something a little bit different than what you might be used to. And I think that's all part of the experience. I think the food at either of those two restaurants is exceptional. If you're interested in Italian food in a beautiful setting, I highly recommend Il Molino uh, over at the Swan Hotel. I've eaten there a number of times. The food and the service has always been outstanding. I also really like Artist Point over at Wilderness Lodge and either Narcusi's or Citrico's. I know this is a relatively long list, but like I said, I enjoy eating when I'm there. Narcusi's or Citrico's over at the Grand Floridian offers a wonderful experience, great food, nice atmosphere, again, without having to go to the, sort of that next level of Victorian Alberts. So hopefully that'll give you a pretty wide spectrum of different types of places and different locations that you could eat around the resort. As far as the free dining goes, my guess it would be that Disney would likely offer it again this year. It probably would be released, according to historical trends, probably somewhere around the end of March, beginning of April, they would announce dates. Although, if you did stay in a Disney resort last year, you probably were, or may have been offered the bounce-back offer, which is if you made your reservation for your next trip in 2008, they would offer you the free dining depending on what dates you were coming. But I would likely suspect that sometime later on this spring, uh, Disney will announce and the, the free dining will be back again this year. That's unfortunately all the time we have for emails this week. If you have an email of a question, a comment, a suggestion, anything at all, you can send that over to lou at wdwradio.com. You can also call the voicemail and be on the air by calling 206-202-4WDW. Thank you for tuning in again this week, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the show. I also want to say thanks to my guest, Tim Kirk, and everybody who's been emailing me. As I said, I want the show to be as interactive as possible, so email me anytime at lou at wdwradio.com with questions, comments, segment ideas, or anything at all. Or if you want to be on the air, you can call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. You can also discuss the show, any topics Disney-related, over at the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com. Remember to visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for links to some recommended sites and friends of the show who will help you get the most out of your next Walt Disney World vacation, including ownerslocker.com and orlandofuntickets.com. And I want to invite you to come by and visit the all-new disneyworldtrivia.com site that launched in beta earlier this week. As I have said for some time, I've been working backstage on a complete overhaul of the site, including the look and feel of the site, as well as the introduction of new features, including a greatly expanded trivia section, which is still growing every day as new additions, information, trivia, and photos are added. And of course, please keep sending in any photos that you have if you want to share them. And if you want to contribute any trivia, history, or fun facts to any of the entries, you could use the link 
to the contact form to send those over. The article section's also been improved, with new articles being posted multiple times throughout the week and many more topics and sections. I've also started a blog where I'll post some thoughts, maybe some breaking rumors, some favorite links, and as a listener coined the term, luminations, which will just kind of be a little bit of everything. So come by, check out the new site and forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Like I said, we are still in beta, but I invite you to come by, take a look around, and please let me know what you think. And finally, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Have a great week, and thanks for tuning in again. See you next week. Hey, Lou, this is Tony from Ocean View, New Jersey. I just wanted to call to congratulate you on one year of doing the show. I look forward to each and every show. Keep up the great work, and thanks again. Hi, Lou, this is Kenny from West Palm Beach, Florida. Just took an old friend of mine up to Epcot this weekend to show him some of the new things he hasn't seen for a couple years. And we were both thoroughly impressed by Starship Spaceship Earth. Sorry about that. Hey, Lou, this is John from South Carolina. Uh, this past summer, my family and I had traveled to Disney down at the end of June. And uh, listening to one of your uh, email questions on last week's show, somebody had asked about ADRs um, at the last minute. And my family and I, when we were in Animal Kingdom, were able to call uh, DW Dine or, you know, the dining reservations, and, and we called about the uh, Rainforest Cafe there in the park, and uh, the dining reservation um, transferred us straight to the uh, phone over there at Rainforest, and they were able to add us to their um, advanced seating list. Um, they, they weren't really a reservation per se, but they knew we were coming, and they told us what time they had a spot available, and probably within five minutes of being there, we were able to get seated. So um, we tried that again in, in uh, Magic Kingdom the next day, but unfortunately the place we tried out was all, all booked up, and being as in the last part of June, very busy time of year. But that's an option for the uh, listener who is looking for last-minute ADRs. Thanks. Hey, Lou, this is JB from Gulf Shores, Alabama. Sorry about my voice. Um, it's been sick the last couple of days. Um, just want to pass some information along, which is kind of interesting. Just got the newest McDonald's Happy Meal, which has... Spiderwick Chronicles on it. And I don't many people check the bottom of the box. I happened to check it today, and it's showing that the next Happy Meal is going to be Walt Disney World Year of a Million Dreams. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I thought that Walt Disney World and McDonald's had stopped doing Happy Meals together, which was kind of disappointing because they've been kind of lacking in quality here since the, uh, the split, if that was true. Um... Hopefully it'll be like the Monopoly game where you can actually win some pretty big prizes just by getting a, a Happy Meal. Um, that's all the information that's on the box. And I would suppose that they'll be doing this two to three weeks from now since this new one just came out. Anyway, just thought you'd like to know that. Um, could be some pretty big prizes. So enjoy. Bye.